Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. We're coming to the end of Paul's discussion about uh, meat and eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. And the point behind all this that he's making is what we call gospel freedom. But because we've become Christians, because we're no longer under the law, we have an amazing freedom in the gospel in terms of what we do. Christianity is not a list of rules and regulations about you can do this, you can't do that. When I was growing up as a Christian, there were lots of those sort of things about you know what was a good thing to go to, what wasn't, and so on. And the gospel frees us from those things. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, the Corinthians were very keen on this. And in this chapter, he's having to put it back a little bit. But it's important we recognise it. The gospel brings freedom. As he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Still lawful. May not be helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And uh, he gives us a really good, I think, final answer to the, the yoga query. Remember the yoga query that Daniel gave a few weeks ago? Is it right to go to a yoga class? He takes us through this with the example that was real for the Corinthians, which was this thing about meat was taken from the market to the temple, sacrificed to idols, and then brought back to the house to be This is their equivalent. And what he says is three things. He says, going to the temple where it's sacrificed, wrong. You can't do that. It's clearly uh, stepping into something that isn't godly, that isn't about Jesus. There is a line. Secondly, he says, though, if you go to a friend's house who isn't a Christian and they serve you meat, if they say nothing about it, you don't have to ask. You can eat it with thankfulness, because everything is the Lord. It doesn't, you don't have to dig in and find out where it's been. But thirdly, he says, if they do tell you, this is meat that's been sacrificed to idols, then for the sake of the gospel, you need to say, quietly, righteously, no thank you. Because what he's saying, although you know there is no substance to it, he thinks there is. So those are the three principles. There is a line, when things are clearly wrong. So let's go back to our, our favourite yoga class. Or even mindfulness, because that's often what we encounter. If it is avatar, it's just something that is derived from Eastern religion, we're going to meditate on Eastern religion and so on, then clearly, I think the Bible would say, don't go. You're exposing yourself to something unhelpful, and you're also demonstrating to the world that these things don't matter. If you go to your yoga class and it doesn't advertise itself like this, you don't have to go and ask every instructor what they believe. You don't, you, it's all right, you don't have to ask. The earth is the Lord. If, however, the instructor at some point does say, oh, by the way, we're now going to meditate and this is why I do it, then for the sake of the gospel, you should quietly leave. Does that make sense? That give us a guideline, Paul's guideline, the biblical guideline for handling issues like this. But that's not the difficult bit in this passage, is it? <laughs> it's the first 23 verses that we're going to have to dig into that are, uh, I think, enormously challenging. I think it's probably the most challenging passage in the New Testament, or one of them. 
if we actually take it seriously, which is what I want us to do today. So Paul starts at the beginning in drawing this clear and detailed parallel between the people of Israel and us. So he says the people of Israel, they, it's a, he says about us, we have been saved and so have the people of Israel. They're all saved from a tremendous slavery, just the same. It says we've been baptised. At least most of us will have been baptised and following Jesus. Well, they were baptised. They were baptised when they crossed the Red Sea. They were baptised into Moses' leadership. He says we share when we break bread together in the body and blood of Jesus. Well, they had spiritual food too. Man, given from heaven, exactly the same. He says. We abide in Christ. We grow in our relationship. We get to know him. He's our friend. He says they enjoyed his friendship and presence too. And yet, punchline, with them, with most of them, God was not pleased. And there's this terrible list of the consequences of what they did. So what on earth happened? And more importantly, what does that parallel mean for you and us, you and me today? What is, what is, what's that trying to say to us? Because you see, this is not a little passing thought that Paul lobs in for a verse. No, he says, he says this time and time again. He says, God, he wants us to consider the people of Israel. We're going to do that this morning. We want to consider the people of Israel. He goes on to say, these things occurred as examples to keeping us setting our hearts on the wrong thing. This is about our hearts this morning. He says later on, these things happened to them as examples. And he says again, they were written down as warnings to us. He's hammering the point home. These stories matter. In fact, they're more than examples. The word that is used there is types. And type is a recurring pattern. We talk about in the Old Testament, there are types of Jesus, people who are in some aspect or other foreshadowing Jesus. He's saying these are types, not just examples. There are things that reoccur in every generation. Can I ask how much you read the Old Testament? Most of us read our Bibles fairly regularly to some degree or another. How much do you read the Old Testament? I think it's quite easy to end up finding ourselves reading the Epistles or the Gospels. But I can encourage us to read the Old Testament. It's two-thirds of the book, two-thirds of God's word for us. Paul feels is really important. So I think we need to take note. I think we need to engage with these stories a bit this morning. I think we need to find ourselves in them. What does it mean for us? What would we have done if we were there? These are real stories. They're not like... You know, Sunday school of the stories. This is things that happened physically. Where do we find ourselves in them? And it's important just to put a foundation here. There is no sense going back to those stories of God taking his people through the wilderness. There's no sense that when some of them died, they lost, as it were, their salvation. This is not talking about them or about us losing an eternal relationship with God. This is talking about what happens if we gradually slip away from a close relationship with the God who saved us. And drift into a life 
increasingly focused on temporary things. Like money, career, reputation, relationships. That's what they did. Because it's about the heart. This is all about what is the source this morning of your motivation. What do you desire most? What are your priorities? And have we got entangled in things apart from God? Because that leads to spoiled lives and wrecked relationships, as we're going to see. This is actually quite a passionate passage for Paul as well. In the middle he says, Therefore, my beloved. You would have noticed that Paul and the Corinthians don't always get on very well. The tone of what he writes is often quite challenging. This is the most personal verse in the whole of our Corinthians. My beloved is a really emotional, it's, it's an intimate phrase. This is him really saying to them, this is what I most desire for you out of my love for you. What he says is, therefore my beloved, flee from idolatry. Because Paul knew, and this is the heart of this passage, Paul knew idols don't matter. But idolatry does. A lot. Idols aren't real. We've had that before, we know that. But idolatry is very real. And he's drawing this distinction. And he goes through these stories to help us to understand what does he mean by this strange word, idolatry, and why does it matter? And it matters for two reasons, as we'll see. It matters, first of all, because it offends God. And secondly, it matters because it enslaves us. These are the two points he's making. So first of all, it matters because it offends God. And we have to go back and look at these three examples. So the first example is the golden calf. That ring about? Remember, the people of Israel have been delivered powerfully through Moses across the Red Sea. They're now at the mountain. And it, and it starts a little bit almost comically because Moses goes up the mountain and he doesn't come back for a few days and they say as for this Moses the man who brought us out of Egypt we don't know what's become of him they become impatient but that then turns into something far more serious they start saying make us gods who shall go before us and Aaron produces they get the meltdown of gold he produces this calf and he actually says these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out. I mean, this is a few weeks after God has delivered them, you know, a little bit longer after those dramatic plagues, and somehow they've already flipped into wanting a God in their own image, a God that they could manage, rather than this God who seems pretty awesome. Idolatry, you see, is, is not trusting God for our future, for our security. It's saying, in effect, that the one who died on the cross to save us, to pay the penalty for all we've done wrong, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore us into a relationship with God, the one who's capable of doing all that, can't look after the rest of our lives. That's what we're saying to when you fall into this form of idolatry. And this is the example that Paul wants us to see. And not surprisingly, that offends God, and the result is 3,000 people die. 3,000 real people, men, women, and children. In fact, it's even worse than that. 
because Moses is told to call together the Levites, the faithful ones, and they're told to go into the camp with a sword and kill a brother, a neighbour and a companion before God's wrath is turned away from That's what Paul wants us to think about this one. It's tough, isn't it? The second example of idolatry, uh, sorry, that was in um, Exodus 32, if you want to go and look at it later. The second is Numbers 25, where they start a relationship with the Moabite women and gradually they sort of slide into things. They start going with their wives to the sacrifices. They start then taking part in the sacrifices. And gradually, over a period of time, they just slip quietly away from a pure following of God. In the end, the phrase is, they end up yoked, tied to Baal. And we'll see this later, that idolatry enslaves us. So this gradual drift away from a love and worship of Jesus through inappropriate relationships, through just playing around with sin, feeling, oh, I'm okay, I can just do a bit of that. It's not a problem. Gradually causes a drift away. And then the third example is the rebellion of Korah, who was a Levite and gathered a lot of other people. And basically he, he started saying, we're, we're, we, we all hear God. Moses isn't special. Well, why is God just anointing Moses? Why can't we all do this stuff? Um, and, and Moses is very humble about it, but God isn't. Because God has appointed and anointed Moses as his authority. So the result is an earthquake and a fire and 250 people die and there's a plague. And people grumbling about God. This is where pride comes in. This is where we think that, our, that, that God's plan and guidelines for our lives are just not good enough really. We've got better ideas. This is idolatry, refusing to do what God is asking us to do. So these are the three stories. These are horrific stories, aren't they really? Lots of people die quite gruesomely. What, 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 what's that got to do with us? How does that fit together with, with the God of love we've been worshipping this morning? What does it all mean? And, and why is Paul so concerned that we look at this? Remember those five times he says, you've got to think about this. I must admit, I don't fully know. I think I found this one of the hardest passages to prepare to preach, to, to think, how, how can we be faithful to the Word? How does it land in our lives? So, I can't give you bad answers, and I would encourage you to read the stories. That's what Paul's told us to do. <laughs> Go back and read them. But I can give you three thoughts that may be helpful as a direction. The first option we have is to say, does God change? Is the Old Testament God different from the New Testament God? And that's quite convenient. And I think it's an easy one to drift into. In fact, there was a guy called Marskion, only 100 years after Jesus' life, who said, this is what it is. There's an Old Testament God who is full of judgment and anger and holiness, and there's a New Testament God. Uh, about very clearly, the church declared, this is heresy. No, we don't go down that line. There is no two gods. God does not change. God does not develop. And actually, you only have to look carefully to find the Old Testament is full of examples of amazing love. 
amazing compassion of God. It's all there. And the New Testament is judgment too. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira when you meet them in heaven as to what judgment can be. God hasn't changed. That's not an option for us. Okay, second thought. Maybe our definition of love is not the same as God's. Maybe his love is the real love. And the love we often talk about has become a bit romantic, a bit wishy-washy. In fact, it's almost in our society become just tolerance. You want to love someone, you're tolerant of anything that happens to them and who they are. Maybe it can become a sort of happy ever after type of love where we never need to confront things. Perhaps real love, God's love isn't like that. Perhaps it's also holy. Perhaps it's also righteous. Perhaps it also really cares about what happens to us passionately. You see, if love is not pure and righteous, it must be twisted somewhere. If it's not pure and righteous, it's doing something for its own good. God's love for us is completely sacrificial. It's pure. It's righteous. It hates evil. And therefore it hates whatever hurts the one he loves. Us. So God hates sin. And therefore... He does do things in our lives that aren't always easy to understand. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, it's very clear, the Lord disciplines those who he loves. In other words, sometimes hard things happen to your life and to my life because God is a father who disciplines his children because it's for our good, because it's going to change us in a way that nothing else would. God never punishes he often disciplines. Punishment is due. We've rebelled against our Creator. We've broken His laws. We've thrown everything He's given back in His face. Punishment is due. But Jesus took it all on the cross. Never feel or say God's punishing you because He never does. He punishes Jesus in our stead. Amazing, isn't it? That's the heart of the gospel. That's what gives us freedom from our pasts. But he does discipline. And that's what he was doing here with his people. So maybe, maybe we need a much better definition of love. And thirdly, horrific although these judgments are, perhaps there's something far more horrific going on in these stories. And that is the rebellion that created beings like us, who've been freed from slavery, invited into a relationship of undeserved and overwhelming blessing by their creator, who loves them passionately, could just throw it back in his face. That's actually far more horrific. We find that hard to see and understand, don't we? Because we're so tied into the world we live in. But actually, if you think about it for a minute, that rebellion is far more horrific. And, in fact, the most common picture in the Old Testament of the relationship between God and his people is what? It's marriage. God talks about being married to his people. It's the most intimate giving of one to another. That's what he's done for us. 
It's a, it's a totally unequal relationship. But that's what he did with his people, that's what he does with us. It's a bit as though, and this is totally medical, the richest, most powerful, charming, wise, gracious man in the world discovered a young woman with nothing, living on the streets, uneducated, completely poor, and said, I want to marry you. And more than that, I want to give you everything for you to share. And, in, and that wonderful fairy story happens, and they marry, and she starts to enjoy all the wonderful goodness of his character and of his riches and all who he is, and then suddenly one day she just runs away and she goes back into the streets and into poverty and she starts taking drugs and becomes a prostitute. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's how God sees his relationship with his people. If you want to read the book of Hosea, I think that will help us understand all of this. It's an amazing book. It's not very long. Hosea is called to live this story out in front of the people of Israel, to show them, to demonstrate what God's love is like and why he is so offended when we go into adultery, but also why he's still so passionate for us. And when you get to Hosea chapter 12, one of us beautiful chapters in the Bible. And you get, you, you get through the book, God is like almost talking to himself, saying, you've done it, you've done it wrong. It's adultery, you've broken my relationship, you, and, and you need to be judged and punished. And then the next one is, but I love you. I love you. But, but I will bring punishment because I'm reaching out. It's the only way to bring you to your senses. So maybe that is what God is doing. And read the book of Isaiah. We'll, we'll bring that out. The second reason why Paul is so concerned and why idolatry matters is because it enslaves us. And there's this remarkable passage in verses 16 to 22. Amazing insight. He talks about communion. We'll come back and do that more fully later. But what he says here, something remarkable. He says, when you eat with somebody, sit down and eat together, you're connected. It creates a connection. That's not just having a sandwich together. When you sit down with time, nice food, glass of wine or whatever, and talk, there's a connection created that didn't happen before. When you sit down and do that together, honouring or worshipping somebody, a bigger connection happens. That's communion. When we do that, we eat and drink together, we connect stronger to each other, and we connect to God and we receive from Him spiritual strength. Eating together does something. If you eat together with demons, that does something too. That starts to enslave people. If we fellowship, because that's the word here, the word is colonial, fellowship, it creates fellowship. If we fellowship with our idols, you uh, might have the idol that might be tempting you, but let's say, let's say it's riches, that's a simple one. If we fellowship with our idol, that means if we look at our bank statement all the time, if we're always trying to do some sort of clever little trick to earn a bit more money, if we're always thinking we never quite got enough, we're starting to fellowship with our idol. And that starts to affect us, it starts to enslave us. 
But you see, idols aren't real, but the devil is. We don't talk often. In fact, I can't really remember a sermon here where we mention the devil. That's in many ways right. We don't want to give him glory. But it's foolish to ignore him. It's interesting how much the Bible talks about him. How Paul talks about the devil's schemes a couple of times. How James talks about the need to resist him. How Peter talks about the devil roaring like a roaring lion. How Jesus talks about the devil. How one John and one John. The Bible doesn't ignore him. It's real. And equally important, it's powerful. Is the prince of this world. He's a fallen archangel. And what I think we often forget is he's a spiritual being. He is more powerful than we are in our natural strength. He is more powerful than we are in our natural strength. We know that he who is in us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than him. But on our own, we get caught. On our own, we can get led astray. He is powerful. And he's always trying to tempt us into idolatry. And Paul gives us again a little snippet here, this passage is full of snippets, <laughs> about how to deal with temptations. Temptations are things that come from outside. So don't feel we've all got it wrong if we're tempted. That's natural. The devil tempted Jesus. Paul says three things. He says, first of all, realize your temptations aren't special. In other words, you don't have an excuse to think, this is so special, I can't resist it. No, your temptations are common to everybody. Nor should you think, oh, I'm such a terrible person because I've been tempted. No, no, it's ordinary stuff. Whatever it is, it's ordinary. Secondly, he says that whenever we are tempted, God oversees that temptation. He only allows it to be a certain size. The devil cannot tempt us beyond what we're capable of. God is still in control. Is overseeing this situation. And then he gives us always a way of escape. And the picture there is like a, an army trapped on a mountain plateau with no way out. And then suddenly the scouts discover, oh, there's a little path over the hill we can get out if we follow that path. It's always a way of escape. It's not a broad way, but he always provides a way of escape. So, Paul wants us to recognize that idolatry is real, we can fall into it, and that the devil is real. And there is always these two things, aren't there, when you read through the epistles. There's always this put off stuff, put on stuff. There's always something we need to do. But whatever it is, God always stirs us and inspires us to be able to do it. He always comes first. Can I ask the band to come back up? Because in a minute we're going to respond in worship. But I think God wants to speak to some of us today. Because the greatest epistle on love and God's love is one job, isn't it? What John talks about, God is love. That's, that's who he is. It's the essence of his being. And do you know how John finishes that whole book? That whole letter? His last words are, little children, 
keep yourself from idols. We need to watch that we don't put something else in place. Is there something in your life that you are relying on more than God? It could be a relationship. It could be the hope of a relationship. It could be career. It could be money or protection. If we're relying on that for our meaning, for our purpose, for our security, we're falling into idolatry. If that is you today when we worship, then just say to God, free me from it. I want to step away from that. I want to be caught up in a much greater passion for you. Maybe you've started sliding. Some of us have just started sliding into things we know are good, but it's only a little thing. No, it's not. It's a step on a journey away from God. Today's the day to say no, to apologize to God, to repent of it, to say I'm not going to meddle around with that anymore. Thirdly, you may be in a situation where you really feel God said something to you about your life and a direction or something to do and you're saying, no, I've got a better idea. Be careful. That's not all the again. We don't want to test God. Paul, out of his love for us today, says, flee from the doctrine. Flee to Jesus. 